Howdy. Welcome to another week of Canon Calls. I am your host, Jake McAtee. And this week, I'm excited that we got a hold of Dr. Tom Shippey, who is one of the world's leading Tolkien scholars. He was on to talk about his book on Vikings. It's titled Laughing Shall I Die? Lives and Deaths of the Great Vikings. You can find it on Amazon or anywhere you get your books. The interview today will obviously be an introduction to that book, but I also highly recommend the YouTube channel Epic History. They did a great little brief animation of the Vikings that that, uh, Dr. Shippey talks about in the book. So without further ado, meet Dr. Tom Shippey. All right, now welcoming on special guest, Dr. Tom Shippey, author of many books, one of my favorite reads on the subject of Tolkien, and he is on today to talk about a book called Laughing Shall I Die. Mr. Shippey, thank you so much for giving us your time. Good. Well, glad to talk to you, Jake. Fantastic. So, Laughing Shall I Die, Lives and Deaths of the Great Vikings. Is this a history? What were you doing with this book? Well, I certainly uh, was not trying to write a history uh, of the Vikings, and there's two reasons for that. One is that there's uh, uh, good histories already, and I'd like to recommend uh, the most recent one, which is by Professor Neil Price, and it's called The Children of Ash and Elm. Okay. Well, that's, that's an excellent history, and I, I wouldn't wish to compete with it. But the other reason, actually, uh, Professor Price pointed out, he reminds us that... Uh, We might talk about histories of the Vikings, but in a way, they're all written from the outside. They say you can't have a history without documents and dates, and we don't have any Viking documents written by Vikings in the Viking Age. And the reason's obvious, uh, Vikings couldn't write, Uh, (laughs) only short runic inscriptions, which uh, don't help us at all. And the other thing is that uh, they never knew what date it was. They didn't have a dating system. They might say, oh, it was the eighth year of King Olaf. But if you didn't know when the first year of King Olaf was, you're, you're none the wiser. Right. So really, our whole Viking history, in the sense of a timeline and a chronology, is put together from the reports of the Vikings' many victims. Okay. And we have those, really, <laughs> uh, running from west to east, in Old Irish, in Old English, in Latin from all over Europe in Byzantine Greek, in Old Church Slavonic from Russia, in Arabic from Moorish Spain, and from the Caliphate of Baghdad. And all these people could write, and they wrote things down very often as they happened. And of course, they always knew what date it was. They had a dating system or dating systems, which we uh, understand perfectly well. So really, our history of the Vikings is put together from foreign sources. It's kind of history from the outside. And I didn't want to do that. Uh, I was really much more interested in um, trying to get at the inside. So in brief, what I was trying to do was to uh, explore the Viking mindset. And we have a lot of information about that in sagas and in poems. But of course, as I've just said, (laughs) they weren't written down at the time. They were written down, well, anything over 150 years after the end of the Viking Age. And so, you know, in a way, they're not, they're not historical documents, but they do provide us evidence of, um, well, what the Viking stories were, what people thought about them, how they reacted. It's kind of um, an image of Viking culture. So basically, that was my aim. I was trying to explore the Viking mindset from the inside, not the outside. Before I ask you about that mindset, when we think of Vikings, so when you when I got the book and when I was essentially reading your book, I have in mind the hats, long blonde hair, maybe. Am I in the right imaginative realm? Do you do you have thoughts about that? Well, uh, is that a I'm Hollywood trying, faux I'm pas? Not to say the word no, Jake, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but uh, one of the problems uh, that uh, academics uh, have felt for a long time now is that the, the Vikings have a very uh, clear brand image. Right. Uh, which we all understand. Uh, you know, it's horned helmets and it's bursikers and it's blood eagles 
and it's, uh, um, um, I'm trying to think what the other cliches are, <laughs> but uh, uh, you know them all. They're, they're yeah. quite familiar from film and TV and so on. Right. Uh, and much of it is wrong, <laughs> and uh, some of it's some of it's just plain wrong, okay. and some of it is, shall we say, uh, exaggerated. People have been trying, as I say, for a long time to get away from the romantic image and replace it with something uh, more realistic. Okay. Um, so uh, yeah, there's a there's a there's a hurdle to get over at the start. Sure. Okay. Okay. So then, tell us about this mindset. What is it about these people that fascinated you enough to to set uh, pen to paper? As my book title suggests, "Laughing Shall I Die," and you know the subtitle is "Lives and Deaths of the Great Vikings," but I actually wanted it the other way around. I wanted it to be "Deaths and Lives of the Great Vikings," <laughs> but the publisher said, "Oh no, no, that's the wrong way around." So they got their way, and, and I didn't. But um, the two themes then, as in the title, are fascination with death and scenes of death and famous last words and famous last stands and all that kind of thing. Uh, and there's also, of course, uh, laughter, comedy. And that is something which uh, people have not been so uh, ready to spot. And then in terms of uh, the death, it seems like today that that couldn't be more of a reversal uh, in terms of, you know, us living the longest, it, it, we don't, that doesn't seem familiar to me uh, as a baseline. What about death? Why, why death? Why, why, why were they well, into death and not life forever? Well, uh, this, this is uh, a question which struck everyone, you know, right at the start when, uh, when the whole of uh, the saga literature started to be rediscovered. Long ago in the 1600s, uh, there was a guy who wrote a book in Latin, uh, which translates out as something like, uh, on the causes of the contempt for death uh, felt by the Danes who were still pagan. And uh, this guy, who, who he, his Latin name is Bartholinus, he was really called Bettelson, he was a Swede, uh, he just did a kind of um, compendium of uh, great death scenes at which he picked from the, 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 the literature. And his explanation was a, a very simple one, which uh, people have actually been ready to believe. He said, uh, Vikings uh, uh, were not afraid of death, because they believed in Valhalla. Okay. They thought that if they died in battle, if they died sword in hand, then they would go to Valhalla, where they would feast with Odin. And that's, a, that's an explanation which has been readily accepted, but I don't believe it. In the first place, we've got very little evidence for it, just a few hints here and there. And in the second place, actually, I don't think uh, uh, belief in life after death is actually a terribly good morale builder. <laughs> Lots of people now believe in life after death, but it doesn't actually uh, hearten you when you're facing up to people coming at you with great big axes. Right. So I think uh, there has to be some other explanation why they um, were so fascinated with the moments of the end of life. I think that uh, uh, Vikings had a very different attitude from ours to winning and losing. And to us, well, we've been uh, influenced, I think, by uh, centuries of competitive games. And you know how games work? There's even numbers on each side. You have a flat pitch. Uh, you change ends at halftime in case there's a, a, an advantage in the pitch. You toss up with a coin for choice of ends at the start. And there's a referee or an umpire to make certain that the rules are observed. So in our system, if you lose all the time, well, there's something wrong with you, isn't there? <laughs> it's your fault. You know, you can't blame anyone else. Right. Well, uh, Vikings were a lot more realistic. They knew that uh, uh, in the heroic life, there weren't any referees uh, and there wasn't any flat playing pitch either. And it wasn't, it wasn't designed to be fair. So even heroes, one day, they were going to be outnumbered, taken off guard, caught by surprise betrayed, let down, something or other would happen. And so if you lost, well, we're all going to lose. We're all going to lose sometime. And where you really show what you're made of is when you've lost. It's your attitude, as it were, at the, uh, at the moment of death. When you actually know it's hopeless and you know you're going to die and you don't give in, that's the important thing. That's what makes the hero. So actually, the way we talk, you know, calling someone a loser, I don't think that would kind of mean much to them. They'd say, well, uh, of course, uh, that's, that's what happens, isn't it? And you could also say that their whole mythology was pessimistic. You know, the world is going to end at Ragnarok. 
and the gods and, and, and the humans would fight on one side, and the giants and the monsters would fight on the other side, and the giants and the monsters were going to win. Right. Right. Yeah. But that doesn't mean you're going to change sides, does it? <laughs> because actually, that's when you show what you're worth. That's when you show what you're made of. So I think their ideology, you might say, braced them or prepared them for the moment when um, it comes to an end. And that, as I say, is when you show how good you are. You can't be a hero unless you actually lose and die. That's right. when you show what, you, what you're really like. That, I think, is why they're fascinated by scenes of heroic death. That was a major part of their ideology. Right. The particular glory in fighting that losing battle, essentially, and, and doing so bravely. I, I, have a yes. qu I have a question, if you don't mind doing a, a jaunt quick over to Tolkien. It, you, you describing, uh, even in your book, I had this thought of, I've always kind of seen Tolkien as seeing a kind of glory in fighting the long defeat. Just having that air about his books, you know, he, he's, <laughs> I believe someone said, uh, only Tolkien could make going to heaven so sad in, in the return of the king. <laughs> but uh, do you think he shares some of that? Is that, do you think uh, he's pulling from that kind of, at least some of that glory similar to the Vikings? Not entirely, yeah, well, of course, but. I think Tolkien obviously understood it very well. Okay. Um, he was, he was steeped in the literature. But of course, he was also, as we all know, uh, a believing Catholic. Right. So he he, he regarded it in a, in a rather more detached way. But uh, I think he uh, he what he perhaps got from the literature was, um, I would say, something like a sense of loss. There are a lot of there's a lot of things that get lost. The Lord of the Rings actually does not really have a happy ending. Right. Because uh, everybody knows that uh, things will not be the same. The elves are going to go away. The Ents will become extinct. Uh, the Hobbits will vanish and so on. So it's uh, very much, um, it, it's not a completely happy ending. Right. And I think Tolkien is very good at, at blending his own belief with the uh, archaic beliefs which he, which he knew about. Ent wives are never found. Exactly. That's right. That's, that's something which isn't going to happen. Yeah. Okay. So in terms of that was their sort of ideology of losing, which, which is totally foreign to ours. Can you tell us about their attitude towards laughter, sort of the other half of your title? Well, that's uh, rather more personal. As I say, the uh, attraction to scenes of death was noticed long, long ago. People have been more reluctant to sort of see the, the idea of humor. And of course, there's a reason for that. They tell me, uh, you know, if you go on a dating site these days, uh, one of the things you're supposed to put down is G-S-O-H, you know, good sense of humor. <laughs> and of course, uh, uh, I think there's an opposite to that. And it's B-S-O-H, bad sense of humor. <laughs> and I'm afraid uh, Viking humor is uh, characteristically cruel. It's kind of, um, the, the Germans distinguish uh, laughing, gegen an der Lachen, that's laughing at someone from laughing with someone. And um, actually, uh, that's not quite right, because Vikings are quite capable of, uh, of laughing at themselves. I think I, I once summed it up in a little syllogism, which, which again is bad sense of humor. Hurting people is funny. People hurting is funny. And the funniest thing of all is when you hurt yourself. <laughs> yeah, well, this takes a bit to get over, but um, it's not all that unfamiliar, even in the modern world. Okay. It's just that it's not kind of authorized. And it's the kind of thing where uh, people, especially, in, especially academics in faculty clubs, you tell them the joke and they look at you and they say, I don't think that's funny. Right. Yeah, right. Well, um, <laughs> you, if you can't take a joke, you shouldn't be in Viking studies is what I say. So I, I feel like if I were to have heard you say, well, they had a bad sense of humor, I'm naturally going to think you mean that they don't have one at all. But that's not the case. They do no, have no. one. They just, what they find funny is not really, author, as you mentioned, authorized today. What's an example of what you mean? Well, uh, the classic example, which uh, I'm sorry, I'm kind of giggling as I, as I <laughs> say it. In the Jomsvikinga saga, uh, the Jomsvikings, who are a bunch of professional Vikings, they, uh, they, they fight a battle against uh, Jarl Hawkon and his son Jarl Eirik, uh, and they lose. And the, the survivors lined up on a log uh, to have their heads cut off. Okay, uh, but the Jomsvikings have a, a, a legal code, 
And the, the, one of the things is you must never show signs of fear. So one of the Yomsvi kings, when it comes to his turn, he says, I'm not going to kneel down and be beheaded. I'm going to stand up and I want someone to cut me down from the front. And I want you all to look at me and see if I flinch. So they do. And he doesn't flinch. And then another one comes along and he says, well, I'll kneel down. Fair enough. But look, uh, I don't want my hair to get bloody. So I'll kneel down and I want someone to pull my hair back over my head so that my neck is bare. And then you can cut my head off. So, and he said, oh, and another thing, I don't want this done by, by a thrall. It must be a proper warrior who's holding my hair. So they say, well, okay, that's reasonable enough. And he kneels down uh, and uh, gets ready to have his head cut off with his hair pulled over his head. And as the axe falls, he jerks his head back. <laughs> and it cuts off the hands of the guy who's holding his hair. Now, that's really funny, isn't it? Well, obviously, they thought so. Right. Because Jarl Eirik, who is supervising, he said, well, <laughs> good, good for you. I, yeah. That was so good. Uh, we, we let you off. Uh, we, you don't need to have your head cut off. Um, uh, and then there's uh, further byplay, and in the end, the uh, the, the few remaining Jomsvikings are all uh, all uh, freed and are not executed. But uh, that that kind of cruel, practical joke. That's I think uh, one of the things that they thought was funny. Obviously, it's not funny for the guy who got his hands cut off. But um, well. Yeah, I just have to leave you to decide whether you think that's funny or not. But that is bad sense of humor. Got it. Got it. And you give that guy some time. In a few years, maybe he will also, you know, get yeah, the joke. Well, get that's the joke. right. Uh, as soldiers say nowadays, again, uh, why did you join up if you can't take a joke? <laughs> okay. So as you're going through all of these stories, how do you treat this? Is this fact or are you treating myths? How do you approach these studies? Well, of course, it's all mixed up. Uh, we have various different kinds of sagas. You know, we have uh, sagas of Icelanders, which are pretty realistic, actually, because they're Icelanders writing about people who are still well known. You also have um, king sagas, which are pretty heavily historical and people rely on them a lot. Uh, but you also have uh, what they call Fornaldasuga, which is sagas of old time. And frankly, these are often romances or, or even fairy tales. There's a strong fairy tale element in them. Uh, dragons and weirbears and witch women and elf women and that sort of thing. So, you know, you have to sort of uh, try and filter it out. Um, there is an element, a strong element of fiction. Uh, but I think there's also uh, 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 some element in there of fact. I'll give you a couple of examples, shall I? Please. One of the, the famous scenes, and it's the one that gave me the book title. When uh, the famous Viking Ragnar Lothbrok, which means Ragnar Hairy Trousers, he's uh, captured by <laughs> King Ella of Northumbria, and King Ella decides to make an example of him, and he has him killed by throwing him into a snake pit, where he's bitten to death by the poisonous snakes. Well, um, the scene itself is famous, and it... Uh, gave rise to a famous poem, The Death Song of Ragnar, uh, which, and the last words of that are actually, laughing shall I die. That's where I got my title from. But uh, a question which uh, always struck me is, um, yeah, uh, throw him in a snake pit. Where did he get the snakes from? The only poisonous snakes in England or Scotland are adders. And I'm very familiar with adders. I used to live in a place which is the, the adder capital of Scotland. Everybody came across them. And um, they're certainly poisonous. One of them killed my uncle's dog, uh, a Labrador called Sally. Okay. And uh, I think Sally, you know, saw one of these beasts and she thought, oh, what's that? I know, I'll bark, go barking up to it and sniff at it. And it bit her on the nose and she died. But uh, just the same, an adder is unlikely to kill an adult human being. And furthermore, as I know very well, they're quite shy. They get away from you. Of course, if a dog comes woofing up to them very quickly, they haven't got time to get away. But uh, I've been near them several times, and they're off as quick as a flash. So I think if you threw someone into a snake pit full of adders, they'd try and get out of his way. Right. Yeah, well, so I thought, um, you know, I don't believe this story. I think it's been um, imitated from a legend from you know, much further back in the past. Uh, so uh, uh, I would just write that off straight away. That's fiction. You can have a guess at why the fiction was invented, but just the same, I think that's fiction. 
And uh, another one, actually, which I could mention, at the Battle of Stamford Bridge, which took place on 25th September 1066, King Harold Harolder in Hardraithi, whom we call Harold Hardrada, uh, he was caught off guard, caught by surprise, caught without his armor, and he still, of course, fought to the death. But according to the according to his saga, as he's fighting to the death, first he comes out with a poem because he's a famous poet himself, and then he thinks to himself, "No, that wasn't a very good poem," and he comes out with another poem which is much more complicated and technically sophisticated. Good story. But then I thought, now, hang on, who remembered that? Who remembered those poems? Who was standing close enough to hear them and get them in his head? Right. Because after all, uh, in that battle, there were almost no survivors on the Viking side. <laughs> they were pretty much wiped out. So I don't think that happened at all. And actually, we know for certain that the account in the saga is actually imitated. Much of the details are imitated from a much later account of a battle uh, in the Crusader times. So the story is, much of it is fiction, and I suspect the poems were made up by the person who wrote the saga, who was himself a famous poet. There are things like that which I would say straight away, no, uh, those must be fiction, those are pure fiction. Several times in the book, that's exactly what I say, it's fiction, it's not fact. Now, as you mentioned earlier, these a lot of what you're working from and a lot of what everyone else is working from are things that the Vikings didn't put down themselves. So as, as you're doing this, do you think, are you looking into the mindset of people who are cataloging these stories 150 years later? Or do you think you're actually getting to the mindset of, of the people 200, 150 years earlier? Does that make sense? What, what, is there a chicken and egg here? Well, that's obviously a, a penetrating question. <laughs> Let me just say one thing before I answer it. Yes. I said, you know, there's bits of the pure fiction. But in recent years, there have been some very unexpected examples of archaeological corroboration. Okay. For instance, I told you the story about all the guys uh, uh, lining up to be beheaded. And uh, about 15 miles away from here, a few years ago, they were digging a, a relief road for the um, sailing events at the Olympics. And they came upon a pit with 54 headless skeletons in it. Wow. And quite close by, they came upon a pit with 51 skulls. Well, they looked at the skulls, and you can identify where people come from by the isotopes in their teeth. And all these guys, they were all males. They were mostly uh, big, heavy guys. They were all Scandinavians. So they'd been executed in a mass beheading, uh, just like the story I, I told you about the Jomsvikings. And um, one of the really funny things is um, several of the, uh, the victims had been beheaded from in front, Okay, just like it said in the Jomsvikinger yep. saga. So uh, that doesn't mean that uh, uh, all the other bits of dialogue and whatnot are, 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 are the same. But we, 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 we can be quite sure that events of that nature took place. And there are other things like that which could be mentioned. But like I say, there's bits that are complete fiction, and there's bits where you think, hmm, well, uh, we better not write that off so quickly. Right. Still, your question was about um, whether the sagas written, shall we say, in 1220 or something, represent attitudes of people who are living in, say, 1020. And um, it's a... A good question, and I spend quite a lot of time working out an argument about it. Briefly, I'd say this. We reckon that the Viking Age ended on 25th September 1066, when King Harold Hardrada was killed along with nearly all his army, and basically they didn't try that again. Right. That was the end of the Viking Age. However, I don't think that was necessarily so obvious at the time. I think actually a lot of people didn't know about it. And it didn't change their behavior at all. They continued to live in the same kind of cultural world, repeating the same legends and stories and ideas and poems that they'd had all along. So actually, I would say that the Viking Age cast a long shadow, especially in Iceland, which is where most of these sagas come from, especially in Iceland, because it was isolated and also very conservative. So I think that actually, probably the mindset in Iceland in 1220 was 
not dissimilar from the mindset of, of uh, Norway in 1020. Uh, of course, there's one big difference, which is that Iceland had, uh, had become Christian. So that affected them. Just the same, uh, the saga literature isn't like anything else recorded from Christian Europe. It's just not like it at all. Right. And I think the reason for that is obviously the long kind of carryover, the long shadow uh, of the Viking Age and the Viking mindset. That didn't go away all of a sudden. Now, you've mentioned quite a bit their poetry and even the story you were talking about how <laughs> he was writing on the spot, if you will, or, or changing it up. Uh, That's right. I've, there's probably a large contention uh, of, and maybe this is, it could be an American thing, you can tell me, but of folks who, when they see poetry or hear poetry, it's a very, uh, it's sort of a girly thing. Like, why would I do that? You know, I, I, I have no interest in poetry, you know. It's something I've tried on this podcast to have poets on and, and trying to encourage, you know, uh, an interest in poetry. But for all intents and purposes, these monsters of people seem to be very poetic. Um, well, that's right. Viking poetry is not about, you know, daffodils and, and nightingales <laughs> and, and, and that sort of stuff. No. And little uh, moments of epiphany. Uh, its main purpose, actually, is to praise uh, the king or the ruler or the hero or the chief. Okay. And so... It tends to be uh, a list of battles. Okay. It's, uh, I mean, we call them death songs sometimes, but they're also Ivy Singer. That's life songs. It's a song which records the great deeds of, uh, of the person being praised. It's, it's praise poetry. So actually, you can see this is very popular indeed right. with uh, the people who are being praised. <laughs> and uh, they uh, feel that, uh, you know, a king really isn't, uh, isn't worth much if he hasn't got a court scald because the court scowl is going to record his great deeds and also put them into verse which no one will ever forget. So right. uh, that's, uh, that's what it's all about. Um, it's particularly, you know, it's obviously, uh, you can only say, bloodthirsty poetry. Um, <laughs> but the other thing about it, and I, I've always been puzzled by this, is it's, um, it's incredibly complicated. It, that, it, uh, that poem, those two poems I mentioned by King Harold Hardrada, uh, the first poem, I think it's quite good, actually. Uh, uh, you know, it's, it's so good, I can even remember it. But what he says, translating is, From Gungam Ver Ifilkingu, we go forward in formation, Brunu Losir, Unt Blam Egium, without armor against blue steel edges. Helmets shine, I don't have mine. All our gear is down by the ships. Anyway, he says this poem, which, as I say, I think is quite snappy. And then he says, No, 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 that won't do. I'm going to do something in a really complicated stanza, <laughs> which is called Drotkvite. And I've had to write out the rules of Drotkvite because I knew for sure well, I would never remember them. It is in, in stanzas of four lines, which are divided into eight half lines. Each pair of half lines must have three words which begin with the same letter, two in the first half line and one in the second half line. Even half lines must have half rhyme, as in uh, benya, manni. Even half lines must also have internal full rhyme, and these full rhymes must occur on the first or second syllable and the fourth or fifth syllable. So you've got to keep counting your syllables, you've got to keep checking your rhymes, you've got to keep checking your half rhymes, and you've got to get them right. Right. There's another scene in another saga where um, uh, uh, King uh, sets up a kind of poetry competition and a professional scowl comes on and recites a stanza of praise for the king. And the king says, nope, that won't do. You just rhymed grum and scum. Well, isn't that okay, boss? Nope, because grum only has one M and scum has two. So it's not a proper rhyme and you're disqualified. <laughs> <laughs> there, uh, there was no Viking yeah. free verse, is what you're saying? No, absolutely. <laughs> well said. I don't know what the option of the opposite of free verse is, but Viking verse is extremely tightly controlled verse, and you mustn't get it wrong. Right. Yeah. Actually, I made a mistake in in my book. I, I'm afraid I'm obviously never going to be a scowl. I just haven't got it. But uh, there's a scene uh, in uh, in another saga where. Um, uh, uh, the famous poet Thormod Kolbrunaskal is dying on his feet. And as he dies, 
he composes a stanza in this difficult form about his own wound, and he dies before he gets to the last word. But uh, it's fortunate because, uh, as it happens, King Harold Hardrada, the great aficionado of poetry, is standing by, uh, only a teenager, but he listens to the poem and he says um, something along the lines of, yeah, okay, well, uh, that last word, it has to be two syllables, it has to be a verb, it has to be a half rhyme with trotha, and it has to be a full internal rhyme with chrith. Obviously, the missing word is svitha, because nothing else fits. And of course, it would help if the word made sense, which in fact it does. So uh, if you know the rules, well, first, you can kind of predict what the missing word is. But also, and this is quite important, if anybody remembers it wrong, someone will tell him. And that's one reason why we think that these poems, which probably were written in the Viking Age, were remembered 200 years later. Right. Because there's no room for variation. Right. You've right. got to get it dead right. So, uh, so they are quite a, a, a useful source of information. But also, they, uh, a, I think people have written about these for, for decades now, but it's still quite hard to see why they were so much appreciated. I mean, they're bloody <laughs> difficult. Composing them is like trying to uh, do a Sudoku in your head at the same time. But um, quite what the art is, I'm not so sure. But anyway, it's uh, clear that this was a, a skill very much admired and very much practiced and very well remembered. So uh, we still have to try to figure out quite what the appeal was. But I, I think you're quite right in saying it was not the appeal of free verse. <laughs> and it's definitely not about daffodil. Not a daffodil is ever mentioned. Right. It seems like Billy Collins or Shakespeare would have been thrown right out of Viking court. Um, yeah, that's right. Well, I think Shakespeare actually <laughs> might have uh, been able to adapt, but, uh, but right. uh, just the same. Yes, it's not Shakespearean <laughs> at all. Now, going through your book, one thing that I was appreciative of, I, I don't pay much attention to current Viking studies, but you sort of uh, give a brief look at the, at the layout and, and I was sort of... Uh, I was shocked, but I guess I shouldn't have been to hear that there's been uh, a new marketing campaign, it sounds like, for the Vikings, where they're, they sound a little bit more reasonable. It sounds like they don't have the mindset that, that you have offered them here. W what's with that? Well, um, I'm afraid this is, uh, you know, I mentioned that, uh, that people want to get away from the romantic image and create another image. And one of the ways uh, academics have done it is to indulge in a bit of trickery. There was a book about 40 years ago, uh, which is called The Viking Legacy, which said, you know, what, a, what splendid people the Vikings were and how much we owed to them and all that kind of thing. And I thought, yeah, actually, what's happened here is that uh, my academic colleagues uh, decided they don't like Vikings much, <laughs> nasty, rough people. They'd rather write about Scandinavians. Okay. Scandinavians, as we all know, are much nicer people. Uh, so that book, The Viking Legacy, was really, uh, I think, about the Scandinavian legacy, okay. uh, which, of course, is quite considerable. Uh, and uh, yes, they were traders and they were explorers and uh, all that kind of thing. And people sometimes ask me, well, weren't Vikings actually peaceful traders? And I say, no. Uh, the <laughs> word vikinger in Old Norse means pirate, robber, marauder. That's all it means. So if you weren't pirating and robbing and marauding, you weren't a Viking. You'd stop being a Viking. You were just another Scandinavian. Right. So actually, you shouldn't mix the two things up. And I'd add, actually, put it this way, most Vikings were Scandinavians, but not all of them. But most Scandinavians were not Vikings, not even part-time. So we shouldn't mix the two of them up. It's a, it's a little... Um, slate of hand. It's a little semantic uh, trickery, which uh, uh, enables people to, um, shall we say, it helps with producing a Mr. Nice Guy image. But I think one thing I'm quite clear about is Vikings were not Mr. Nice Guy. My old friend, uh, Patrick Wormold, he once said, uh, would it be true to say that Vikings were mad, bad, and dangerous to know? And he said, well, they certainly weren't mad, except for one or two psychopaths of whom we have records. They weren't really bad because they had a code of honor of their own, but they were certainly dangerous to know. No question about that. So actually, the Viking image and the peaceful trader image 
are really quite separate from each other. And I'd add one other thing to that is, uh, oh, yeah, peaceful traders. Have you ever asked yourself what they were trading? And the short answer is slaves. Okay. They were slavers. That was a large part of where the money was, frankly. I think, uh, actually, in this area, the old romantic drinking out of skulls image is rather more accurate than the, uh, the modern peaceful trader image. So if we show up to the crime scene where the Viking image, that skull beer drinking Viking image is dead on the floor, what is the motive? Why, why do current academics, what's in it for them? Why, why would they do it? <laughs> well, <laughs> you are uh, pushing me into a corner here, uh, Jake, because <laughs> of course, uh, if I were to reply honestly to this, uh, I would be in serious trouble in the faculty club, and uh, you know, no one would talk to me ever again. But then, here comes my headline. This is what we'll headline yeah. the episode with. I, I'm ready. Yeah. Well, um, it's quite true that we we need to get a uh, should we say a fuller picture of the, uh, the the Viking era, and it's only fair in that to take in the uh, for instance the Viking urge to explore, which uh, is obviously very considerable, and again, of which we have very good records. So no one can say that they weren't um, daring people who pushed the boundaries. But um, just the same, I think uh, peaceful traders might turn into uh, dangerous robbers, armed robbers, at any moment. And actually, uh, again, I'm I'm talking in Dorsetshire, and the uh, first recorded Anglo-Saxon victim of a Viking raid was actually in 789 when three ships of Norwegians pulled in at, the, at Portland on the south coast. And uh, the Reeve of Dorchester, which is my local county town, he uh, very uh, boldly rode down and attempted to collect harbor tax off them. Wow. He assumed they were peaceful traders, right? Right. So they killed him. Okay. Um, <laughs> well, so uh, I think actually you could say that uh, they might have been peaceful traders right up to the point when someone asked them for money. And right. then they stopped being peaceful traders. It was a metaphor, um, a metaphor yeah, for that's today. Right. Uh, I'd just like to say the man's name was Beaduhard, which is Anglo-Saxon for hard battle, uh, which tells you something about the Anglo-Saxons as well. Actually, they weren't exactly a bunch of pacifists by any means. Right. Um, but uh, that was the kind of uh, situation, that, a mixed situation. You weren't quite sure whether they're peaceful traders or, or, or armed robbers until the moment when they made their minds up. Right. So, yeah, we should have a fairer picture. And uh, I'm not denying that uh, Vikings were also, in a way, great, um, what should we say, urban developers who uh, <laughs> uh, did a great deal to build up the modern town of York and who uh, settled in northern England and in Normandy and so on. They did lots of things which we um, still benefit from, in a way. But behind it all, it was. Uh, Robbery with violence. That was, that was the main activity. Right. Why is it not enough just to have them stay that way in history? I mean, why is that not enough to be like, well, to allow them to essentially be, these are the people we'll never be. We don't like them. Why change it? Why, why do we need, it's just their move to get a better picture and they go too far? Well, you know, I, uh, you're asking me to sort of penetrate other people's <laughs> psychology in a way. Uh, um, I think the, the uh, well, academics are rather uh, strange people. They're mostly rather sheltered. Uh, they don't get out much, you know. Um, I think they, uh, they prefer to think the best of people, uh, and they prefer to deal with people who are like themselves. Okay. And, uh, uh, and frankly, uh, when I think back over my colleagues, uh, there's not many of them I would recruit for a Viking crew. They wouldn't fit in. Right. In the book, you, you put in, uh, I assume, in, in scare quotes, you mention uh, a trigger warning that you offer, <laughs> which I think yeah. this book is one big trigger warning, really. It's one big trigger warning. Yes. You're quite right. I we should have said that at the start, Jerry. <laughs> this is a trigger warning. <laughs> I can't imagine a people more terrifying I mean, there are terrifying people in all ages, but especially to the psyche of today, these are full-blown monsters. Mm. Well, uh, all I can say is um, I reckon my old sergeant uh, uh, would have fitted into a Viking crew absolutely fine, uh, no trouble at all, uh, except uh, I think even the Vikings would have been rather careful around him. He was a dangerous <laughs> fellow, yeah. No, I'm sure that, uh, that uh, there are several other people I know who would have uh, fitted in perfectly well. But none of them actually ever turned up in the faculty club. Right. 
one quick note on the names. Earlier you mentioned Harry Breaches. How did they, <laughs> I'm sure he earned the name. How, how did, do you know in terms of how they went about naming things, naming people? That's another good one, really. I mentioned uh, Ragnar Lothbrok. Broke is the, the Norse equivalent of, uh, of breaches, uh, or in, in Scottish or Northern English, it would be breeks. And loth means kind of hairy. So he was called uh, uh, Ragnar Hairy Trousers. <coughs> now, we don't know why. His saga says it was because he um, once had to save uh, a princess from a dragon. And to save himself from dragon bite, he uh, put on hairy trousers and rolled in wet sand. So that when the dragon bit him, it didn't get through his trousers. That, frankly, does not seem to me to be a very likely story. Well, one of my uh, one one of the academic ladies noticed that uh, Ragnar is probably the same person as a Viking called Regineros, who raided Paris in uh, 851, I think it was, and came away with a with a pile of loot as well. But she pointed out that um, he was uh, said to have had uh, an attack of dysentery. And you know what happens when you have dysentery? You have continuous diarrhea. Right. So she suggested that perhaps they called him Lothbroke because actually he'd fouled his trousers. That seems likely. That is a theory we can (laughs) immediately discount. Okay. Because frankly, if he'd fouled his trousers, his friends, all of them with bad sense of humor, would have called him (laughs) Dritbroke. And and you might have to censor this, but basically Dritbroke means shit pants. Perfect. yeah, they'd have called him that, and so would I, to be right. truthful. Um, uh, I have a bad sense of humor as well. <laughs> okay, cut. Yes, well, all right. Because not de- trigger warning, trigger warning. Yeah. Uh, we better not develop that idea too far. But, uh, yeah, um, their naming habits were uh, very often sometimes kind of uh, cruel, but, but the kind of thing your, only your friends can say to you. And sometimes they may have been more... Suggestive. I mean, another one of the sons of Ragnar was Ivar Hinbeinlosi, which is normally translated as Ivar the Boneless. Well, why would you call someone boneless? I don't know. But one suggestion, which I thought is quite good, is that Bainless could also mean legless. And if you're legless, what are you? You're a worm. And what's a worm? It's a dragon. Right. So perhaps they were really calling him Ivar the Dragon. Well, that's a way cooler name yeah. than boneless, I think. Yeah. So uh, uh, we all have to try and figure out. And of course, you've got someone like Harold in Hardraithi, and that means something like Harold Harsh Council. But I think I would translate it as Hardline Harold. Okay. You're not going to get a soft answer from him. Okay. You only get a, a tough answer from him. And this, of course, is kind of admiring. Or you might get a name like uh, the, the Vikings called their enemy. The Anglo-Saxon king Edmund, they called him Yarnsila, which means Ironside, because he didn't give up. Right. Now, Tom, I have to ask, we, we talked a little bit about how this is not quite up to the taste of most academics. You know, there's been a move to sort of sand the edges of these guys. Who are you that, that this is, uh, you mentioned you have a bad sense of humor yourself. Who are you? Can you introduce us to yourself? Oh, well, yeah, good question, actually. The guy who wrote that book, The Viking Legacy, 40 years ago, uh, I was uh, talking about uh, something about Anglo-Saxon, actually, in a a conference in Denmark, and he obviously didn't like it. And uh, (laughs) he got up and he said he had a question. And the question was, who are you? (laughs) Who is the lecturer? And I uh, looked down my nose at him, and I have a, a big Scandinavian nose to look down. And I said, well, I have a question, too. Which institution does the questioner represent? And he said, University College London. And I said, ah, London. They have a university there. Goodness me. Of course, I was from Oxford. So I was looking down my nose at him and generally sneering at him. Uh, But but, um, I guess, uh, uh, what can I say? You know, I I went to Cambridge, not Oxford. Uh, uh, I've lectured at uh, or been a professor at, at six different universities, three in uh, three in England and three in uh, America. And um, I can look down my nose at anybody, frankly. Uh, <laughs> I don't care. Um, but uh, I think he was just cross because uh, I hadn't done a PhD uh, in Old Norse studies under his direction. 
Okay. And he thought he really had the right to decide who was uh, an authority and who wasn't. Uh, but uh, I don't make any claims like that. I've just read a great deal of it. You're like um, a Robin Hood Viking going about, you know, a good well, guy, but yes. robbing, but a good guy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I think the other thing, and I mean this quite seriously, if you want to be a professor in medieval literature, I think it's very important to engage with the general public, because if you don't engage with the general public, they'll lose interest in you. And if they lose interest in you, then you won't have any students. And pretty soon you won't have a job either. So it is vitally important, I think, to build on what people already recognize. And if there's two things in the medieval world, which still have a brand image in the modern world, it's Vikings and King Arthur. And academics don't like to talk about either of them. Well, they should. They should. It's absolutely vital, I think, to uh, talk to people outside the faculty club. Has that been something in, in your academic career that, that you've made sure to, to do? What, what does that look like for you? Well, uh, you talk about Tolkien fighting the long defeat. Right. You know, that's what he talks about. And of course, he meant his own life, actually. His long defeat was trying to uh, rescue medieval literature from the continuous competition of a modern literature. And he thought it was vitally important to study medieval literature and medieval language, and especially Icelandic, uh, which he was very, uh, very, very fond of. And uh, I entirely agree with him. That's what we should do. But uh, in these days, actually, that's the kind of thing that gets chucked off university syllabuses. They don't do that sort of thing anymore. Well, uh, that's a mistake, because uh, in the end, as I say, universities depend on the general public. And if the general public loses interest in them, which it seems they are doing, then uh, then you have no future. Right. Now, I, I would be remiss. Uh, I met, We mentioned earlier that y- you are a Tolkien scholar as well. You had the opportunity to meet Professor Tolkien, correct? Yeah, yes, that's right. A long time ago. Well, of course, it's a long time ago because he died in January 1973. I got my Oxford job in uh, September 1972. Okay. So I only uh, was in Oxford with Tolkien in the last like three or four months of his life. Okay. Uh, but yes, I did uh, have quite a long conversation with him. Uh, and of course, uh, there was a sort of fellow feeling because um, we both went to the same school, King Edward School in Birmingham. And Tolkien knew who I was already because, you know, kind of kept in touch with things. But uh, also, we, we used to play for the same rugby team, which is Old Edwardians. Tolkien only played a few times, and I played for seven seasons. But uh, that was another kind of bond, you might say, between us. Sure. What was that? Can I ask about how it went? Why I imagine that that were you already a fan of his work at the time? Oh yeah, yeah, sure. Some years before, I'd given a talk about him at a, a little day conference in Birmingham, and his secretary was there, and uh, she asked for the script. And of course, in those days, we didn't have computers. So I gave her a carbon copy of my script, and, and she gave it to Tolkien, and he wrote me a very nice letter about it, which I've still got, of course, framed. You of course, bet. of course. Um, so, uh, uh, as I say, we, he, he, was, he was aware of me, and, uh, and of course, I, I was very well aware of him. But we had a very, very nice conversation, but I didn't like to try and interview him. Sure. Because he'd been interviewed so many times already. So we just had a little Hobbit-style chatter about the old school and the old rugby team. And, uh, you know, uh, he listened quite interestedly while I ran through the fixture list and, uh, and the team sheet. And uh, he, was, he was listening to me because he thought, you know, the guys I was talking about who I played with, were they the grandchildren of people he knew? Right. Well, probably they were. Right. Now, if he, if he fought the long defeat in terms of medieval studies, would you describe your career similarly? How, how would you talk about your career? Well, you bet. Uh, uh, absolutely the same. Uh, I spent most of my career as a professor of English language and medieval literature trying to protect some vestige of the syllabus from the insistent demands that it should be closed down. How did that go? Uh, pretty badly. I was always outnumbered. On the other hand, uh, I was quite sneaky about it. You know, I would always try and work out a syllabus uh, in which uh, many subjects were optional. Okay. Because I was quite sure I could get an audience for Viking sagas in translation right. or medieval romance or something like that. No trouble at all. The students turned up and they were very interested. 
But many of my colleagues just wanted to, uh, you know, just just uh, abolish it all. And that's what Tolkien thought, too. So it really was a case of, a, I won't say a long defeat, but it was a long rearguard action. Now, you mentioned that it, it was sort of crucial for, for folks in that world to be talking with people outside of the classroom. If it didn't go so hot within the academic world, are you encouraged by how your work has been received outside of the classroom? Yeah, yeah, sure I am. Uh, uh, I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's not hard to measure. One of the questions is, uh, okay, what's your print run? <laughs> Second books these days. Sure. They print 250 copies. They sell them for a hundred bucks a time or worse, uh, maybe 200 bucks. And who buys them? Nobody. Only research libraries. And even they're getting a bit sticky about it when it comes to that sort of price. Whereas uh, I don't know how many copies I sold of The Road to Middle Earth. Right. Probably 100,000. Right. And as for Tolkien, <laughs> well, I can only laugh when I think uh, <laughs> how many copies he sold. Nobody knows. Right. Nobody has the faintest idea. Many millions. Many, many millions. So uh, Tolkien uh, did exactly the right thing. He appealed over the heads of the academic world to the general reading public, and he was totally successful, and they've never forgiven him for it. Wow. All right, Mr. Shippy, thank you so much. I've taken more of your time than I asked for. I really appreciate your time. And where do you want folks to find you? Is there a place you want to send them? Well, I'd, I'd really like them to uh, buy the, uh, the remaining uh, copies of my uh, print run, because um, if they buy them all, then we'll have a paperback edition. There you go. Um, and uh, I intend to write a, a, a short and snooty preface to that, uh, <laughs> um, uh, uh, being rude again about my academic colleagues, uh, former colleagues. So yeah, uh, buy the book by all means. Um, if you want to uh, look me up, what you could do is Google Tom Shippey plus, and you've got to get this right, Arts and Sciences St. Louis. And you see my, uh, my kind of um, biography there. And actually, another thing, I, it just crosses my mind. You could go to the website, which is academia.edu, and you'll see quite a lot of my stuff uh, there. Go into the website, put Tom Shippey in the search uh, uh, button, and, um, and quite a lot of stuff will pop up, which might interest you. Perfect. Perfect. All right, everyone. Laughing Shall I Die is the title of the book. Go get it so we can get that other print run and that, that snappy preface. Cheers. Thank you so much. Thanks. Thanks. 